Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. I've probably shared parts of, um, parts of this story, or at least parts of my experience working for a car dealership when I graduated from seminary. When I graduated from seminary, um, I was pastoring a small country church and um, didn't really know uh, whether I wanted to move to stay there or whatever. And um, I finally decided I'm just going to stick around in Warsaw, Indiana for a little bit. And I figured I'd find myself a full-time job and um, came across a newspaper ad for a car dealership in town, Petro's GM Showplace. And so I thought, well, that's, you know, interesting. I could, you know, do that and then um, I'll continue to pastor the church and I could use that maybe to pay off some college debt. I didn't have any seminary debt, but I did have some college debt, about $9,000, I think, of college debt. And um, so I went over and I, and I interviewed. I met the owner and I interviewed. And um, he immediately wanted to hire me. Um, said he liked the fact that um, I didn't have any automotive experience except for my own tinkering that I did. Um, it was for a service writer. And the last thing they wanted was a automotive technician taking the orders because they diagnose stuff at the desk. And they half the time get it wrong. It should be the guys in the back that are actually doing the work that are supposed to diagnose stuff. So he's like, I like the fact that you don't have any experience. But I like the fact that you obviously must be okay with people because you're a pastor. So he wanted to hire me, but the service manager didn't. The service manager thought I would get eaten alive because if you know anything about how a automotive shop often works in the back, you have all the technicians and um, didn't think it was a good, healthy atmosphere for a seminary student. So he didn't want to hire me at all, but the owner did in the long run. Basically, um, they hired me. And so... I show up on the first day of work, and all the guys in the shop had already been warned by the shop manager, Kim, that I was a seminary student and that I was a pastor. And um, so there was already this almost tension, if you want to call it, where they looked at me a little strange. And uh, they gave me a nickname immediately, Father Mike. I kept on telling them, I'm not Catholic, but that's all they knew. And so they nicknamed me Father Mike. And um, there was always sort of a, you know, I'm up front, and they're kind of in the back, but they always treated me a little bit awkward or a little bit different. And maybe it's because they just knew their lifestyle wouldn't line up with my lifestyle. And um, and I started thinking, you know, this is my mission field. This is why I'm here. And um, so I would do my best to try to kind of, you know, go back and chit-chat with them and stuff like that. And it just never seemed to go very well. You could always tell there was this distance or, the, you know, something. And um, they, they would tease me and mock me a little bit, that type of stuff, you know. Well, I noticed that they would always, on Friday nights, at the end of the day, they would always congregate back in the parts department. And they would all bring their beer in there and their cigarettes in there, and they would all hang out back there and ultimately get drunk and then drive home. And um, you could almost see the smoke kind of coming out of the, the parts department, you know. And I never went back there to really join them because I don't drink and Really, my dad grew up with a dad who smoked and I didn't want to be in, you know, in that environment. Um, but I didn't really have a problem with these guys. But I began to think, you know, if these guys are ever going to learn to open up and have a relationship with me, I'm going to have to kind of meet them where they're at. And so on one, one particular Friday, I decided I was going to go back there. And um, so, you know, the whole shop kind of closed down. And normally I would leave because it was like a 10-hour day and so you're anxious to get home, you know. But I thought, oh, I'll go hang out with them. So I did. I kind of went back there and, boy, I tell you, they're all chatting and they're all doing their thing, you know. And just like that, I walk in that back door and it was like, everybody stopped talking, you know. They're like, like why is this dude here? So I kind of came in and said, you mind if the guys join you? If I join you guys? They're kind of like, uh, uh, sure. 
you know. And it was a little bit kind of like awkward or strange. And so I kind of hung around with them for a little bit, you know, and you could tell they were awkward. And after a little while, I decided, you know, it's just time for me to kind of go home. But then the next Friday, I kind of did the same thing. And then the next Friday, I kind of did the same thing. And you could sort of see they were easing up a little bit or loosening up a little bit, you know. Now, I mentioned I, I didn't drink. I never, I grew up in a home that my parents didn't really drink. Um, my, most of my friends did not drink until I got to be like a senior in high school, and then they would all get drunk, and I was the guy driving them all home. Um, I never really took a liking to it, so I didn't really drink. I never liked alcohol, so it wasn't a conviction, per se, of mine um, to not drink. It's just something I didn't do. But in the middle of the summer, working at Petro's GM Showplace, that shop was well over 100 degrees, and we would wear polyester clothes, and you would sweat the whole day. And so we would have these big jugs of Gatorade like they use for sports teams. And we would be chugging that all day long because it was the only way to stay hydrated. And you would still wouldn't go to the bathroom for almost the whole day because you're just sweating it all off, right? So at the end of one particular Friday, and I go back there, you know, and, and I'm just parched. And um, one of the guys looked at me and he said, um, do you want a beer? Kind of real shy-like. And I looked at him and I said, sure. I know many will have a problem with that, especially as a pastor, as a Christian. But I thought, you know what? I'm going to go ahead. And so I took it from him. I drank about half of it. Couldn't stand it. I don't like the taste of beer. Um, but it was enough to quench some of the thirst, you know. And I thought, you know, is this a good witness? Is it not a good And it's, I struggled with that a little bit. But I went ahead and I did it anyway. And what's interesting is, one of the guys came up to me afterwards. He goes, hey, we know you don't really like beer. What's your choice to drink? And I said, I just love Pepsi. The next Friday night when I went back there, somebody brought in a thing of Pepsi for me. They never offered me another beer. But I would walk back to say, hey, Mike, here. And they would drop the Pepsi on the counter. Always a little six-pack that had been chilled. And for the rest of my time out there, I pretty much would hang out with them in the back. And what was interesting about that is these guys started to open up to me some. They started telling me about their marriage relationships. They would pull me aside. They would invite me out to lunch occasionally. When they would go out from the shop and they would go pick up food to bring it back, they would always come up to the front and ask me whether or not I wanted some. And in many respects, I became part of their little in-group in the back, and they no longer saw it as awkward or unusual. But one of the guys did tell me, they said, you know, we were a bit shocked that you came back to join us because we didn't think you would ever consider that to be among us. And he did this. Sinners. And I said, well, why does that shock you? They're like, because you're a seminary guy. You're like a pastor. You hate, hate this stuff. And I said, well, just because I don't drink or smoke doesn't mean that I need to be away from you guys, you know. But the only reason I share this story was because it was interesting how... <laughs> When I started, I just, you know, they thought I was a little awkward, but they were shocked because my behavior was somewhat unexpected. Not just that I went back there, but that I happened to drink half a beer one time with them. It was unexpected. It was somewhat shocking. And it caught them a bit off guard. Ever been in a situation like that? Where maybe somebody doesn't act like you might expect them to act, or somebody surprises you? Their behavior might be a little unexpected? What about when it comes to God? Does God ever do that? Or do anything that's unexpected or maybe something we don't really? Not out of character for him, but maybe 
does something or we see something in the scriptures or the text that tells us, well, that's a little unexpected. That's kind of what we see today. When we look at Acts chapter 9, we're going to see these two rather unexpected encounters, and we're going to see Jesus do something that we might think is a little bit unexpected, at least from the perspective of those involved. And so we have these two unexpected um, encounters, if you will. One of them, the first one is with Saul. The second one is with a man named Ananias. So let's go ahead and look at this and see if we can break this down. So this first unexpected encounter was by, um, or between Jesus and the apostle, who became the apostle Paul, but at this point he's still named Saul. Now if you remember right, Saul was on a mission to destroy the church. We were first introduced to him in chapter 7 and 8. He participated in the murder of Stephen by, at a minimum, sitting back and holding their cloaks or watching their cloaks while people stoned Stephen to death. He ravaged the church in Jerusalem where all that was left in Jerusalem for the most part were the apostles. The rest had all been scattered. All the believers had been sent away from their homes. They were scattered off into the area that we refer to as the Diaspora, which is the area outside of Jerusalem. Now we learn in our passage today that Saul was not satisfied with what he had accomplished in Jerusalem. Let's go ahead and look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. It says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any among the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now you notice here Luke says that Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. Jerusalem had practically been emptied of Christians. We don't just have to take Luke's word for this and what he says. In fact, Paul says this in Acts chapter 29. So then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them as often in all the synagogues. I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. So Paul was not satisfied with cleaning house in Jerusalem, he wanted to eradicate all believers. He wanted to destroy the church of God. It was a plague on Judaism. He had warrants on hand from the high priests and the Sanhedrin. He went from city to city looking for believers to see who he could find. When he found them, he dragged them off to Jerusalem. He tried them, had them convicted, and then even voted to have them put to death. That's the man we're looking at here. Now, something changed on one of those trips. We see here that he actually was on his way to Damascus. It says that he was looking for some there. And the text, the way this is kind of worded here, notice it says in verse 2, so that if he found any belonging to the way... The picture you get of Paul going into these cities was it wasn't because he got a report that there was a Christian there. He'd go to these cities to find out if there were Christians there. You know, it's one thing to complain there's a problem and ask for assistance coming in, you know. But this was going to look for trouble. And so Paul is out there making sure there's no Christians over here or over there. But as he's making his way to Damascus, something happens. And it's rather unexpected. 
Look at verses 3 through 5. It all began with this blinding flash of light. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This happened around noon, we're told in Acts chapter 22. Happened as Paul was nearing Damascus. You see this blinding light from heaven, it flashes around him. Acts chapter 26 says that the light was actually brighter than the sun. That's Paul's description. In fact, we learn later that it was so bright that it actually caused Saul to go blind, at least for a short time. It must have been an awesomely frightening experience. Think about that. Paul and all his traveling companions were told, fall to the ground. So here he is in all his pride and arrogance. I'm assuming he's riding a horse. Blinding, flashing, white light burst on the scene, knocks him to the ground. He loses his sight and he's face down on the ground. At the same time, he hears this voice cry out, Saul! Saul! Why are you persecuting me? Now, I don't know what Jesus' voice sounds like, but I would imagine it was probably a fairly powerful, scary sound. Unsure of the source of the voice, Saul asked a very simple question. Okay, uh, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Can you imagine what must have gone through Saul's mind at that point? Jesus had been crucified. He was just a man, after all. He'd been crucified, put to death, They saw him on the cross, dragged him off, put him in a tomb. The guy is dead. Or so Paul wanted to believe. In spite of everything Saul had heard about Jesus rising from the dead, in spite of seeing the Jews by the tens of thousands commit their lives to Christ, being baptized, in spite of all of that, in spite of everything he had heard, Saul believed that Jesus was dead. So he made his life's mission to stomp out that heresy. But then all of a sudden, this dead Jesus is talking to him from heaven in an unexplicable way. Jesus calls Saul out for two things if you look at the text. The first one was that he was, wasn't simply persecuting The followers, Jesus specifically says twice, you are persecuting me. Why is that? When you persecute the body of Christ, you are persecuting Christ himself. And so the first thing Jesus calls Saul out for is for persecuting him personally, not just the disciples. The second was that Paul's efforts to destroy the church were futile. You don't see it here, but if you look at it, you don't have to turn there now, but Acts chapter 26, another account of this, Jesus actually says to Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's kind of a weird statement. A goad was basically a sharp stick that was used by a a shepherd when a stubborn animal decided it didn't want to obey the shepherd. He'd poke him with a stick. What do you suppose would happen at that point? The animal would obey. Why? He's being prodded. And so if an animal would try to kick against that goad, it was somewhat futile because the shepherd's just going to poke him a little harder. Right, 
And so Jesus, when he, when he calls out Saul here, basically says, Saul, you're being stubborn and your efforts are futile. You are trying to destroy the church. You are persecuting me, but it's a futile effort. I'm the one that's got the goad. And I'm sure Jesus would stick him with it if he had to. Now, fortunately, Saul listens and he doesn't have to get stuck with the goad. But the reality of it is Jesus is calling him out, not just for persecuting others, but persecuting himself, but also for being futile and trying to do something that just was not going to happen. I love that because the picture that we get through the book of Acts is that Jesus is building his church. And there is nothing that is going to stop him from building his church. We've seen the rulers come against the, the, the apostles and say, don't do this, stop doing this. Then they beat him. Then they put Stephen to death. But nothing is going to stop Jesus from building his church. And certainly Jesus is not going to let this man Saul do it. So his efforts are futile. What a picture this must have been. Here's this arrogant, proud, mighty Saul the Pharisee, trained by Gamiel, the best in the business. You know, he was educated and likely people knew who he was. It's it's assumed that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the 70, because the fact that he's able to cast a vote to put somebody to death implies that he was part of the Sanhedrin. So here's this great member of the Sanhedrin. And all the, he probably even had fancy robes, the way that the Pharisees are described in the book of James. They wore fancy clothes. And that's, that's probably the Apostle Paul. And so there he is, in all of his arrogance and his pride, the mighty Saul, the great persecutor of Christians, the great defender of the Jewish faith, flat on the ground, in the dust, cowering. What a sight that must have been. Now what began with a flash of light actually ended with a new mission, a new purpose in life. In fact, a new life for Saul. Look at verses 6 through 9. Jesus says, Get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could not see, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. That tells you what's going through Paul's mind. He's not eating or drinking. Can't see. I imagine he's probably petrified, shocked a bit, trying to process everything that had just happened. This dead guy just spoke to me. So Jesus commands Saul to go to Damascus and wait for further instructions. Paul actually, in Acts chapter 26, tells us about those instructions. Specifically, it says, in fact, why don't you go ahead and turn there, Acts chapter 26, we'll read that account. That will help us, I think. Acts chapter 26, verse 16. We'll start with 15, it says, And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet for this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you as a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So the purpose that Jesus was revealing to Paul, to Saul, was that he had appointed him as a minister, as a servant 
to be a witness for him. The same purpose that he called the apostles to. He also says here that he was sending him to both Jews and Gentiles, that he would do something with Paul among those Jews and Gentiles that would require him to be rescued from the Jews and the Gentiles. We know that's the story of Paul's life. But specifically that he would send Paul to the Jews and Gentiles so that he could open their eyes through faith in Jesus Christ so that they could receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among God's people. So immediately upon reaching down into Paul's life, Jesus tells him what his mission in life will now be. It will go from persecuting the church to now building up that church. What a radical change. It had such a profound effect on Saul that he obeyed immediately, which is rather interesting as well. In fact, it started right there in Damascus. Look at chapter 26. Stay right there for me. Chapter 26, verses 19 and 20. This is when Paul is actually in front of Agrippa, King Agrippa. And notice he says in verse 19, So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, um, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Notice there that he says, King Agrippa, I didn't delay. I did it immediately. I started right there in Damascus with the mission that Jesus Christ had given to me. In fact, that's actually seen in over half the book of Acts. We're going to see the second half of the book of Acts where we see Paul do just that. He obeyed. He would go to the synagogues first, then he would go to the Gentiles, and that's what we have. And Paul, we actually see it reflected in all of his letters as well. He was obedient to the mission, the calling that was given to him, and it started immediately without any hesitation. That's how profound, how profoundly this affected him. What's our takeaway from all this? There's a few things I want to highlight. What do we do with this portion of the text? Well, I think the first thing that we need to look at, one of the takeaways, is that we should not be shocked or surprised that Jesus would save Saul. Now, I know for, you know, we know the story. We've heard the story before. But isn't it a little bit odd, unexpected, maybe, that instead of squashing this little bug known as Saul, that Jesus instead would choose to save him and to now use him? Would that be our response? No, we'd like to destroy our enemies usually, right? But it shouldn't shock us that Jesus chose to save Saul because ultimately isn't he in the business of saving sinners? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul wrote, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he's here. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Paul also wrote, But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is the mission of Christ. It should not shock us or surprise us that he takes a vile persecutor, hater of God's people like Saul, and saves him. Because that's what he's in the business of. Second takeaway for us is we can't escape the role that God's sovereignty played in all of this. It's interesting. I don't see in Saul here an openness to turn to Jesus just because somebody will convince him. He had seen all the evidence. He had heard all the stories. 
refused to believe him, but he was arrogant, he was proud, he's out there marching against God's kingdom. And it's not like Jesus came up and said, hey, um, you want to slow down? Get off the horse, come and talk to me. Let's have a discussion. How would you like to join my team? There's none of that in this text. There is, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Pick yourself up, go to Damascus, and I'm going to tell you what you will do for me. It's not like he gave Saul much of a choice. Now, we may struggle with that a little bit, because the scriptures make it clear that we do have a choice. And there's this dance or this balance between God's sovereignty and our free will. And Paul obviously made the choice because he tells Agrippa, I was obedient immediately. That's a choice he made. But we can't avoid the sovereignty of God being the one who actually initiates this. Jesus initiated this. It's not that Paul went, maybe I got it all wrong. Hey, Jesus, you there? Can we talk? Am I missing something here? No. Jesus is the one who initiated it with him. That's God's sovereignty at work. He commanded Saul to go to Damascus and to wait. He also told Ananias, Paul is my chosen instrument to bear my name before the Gentiles and Jews and kings. He told Paul, I'm going to appoint you as a servant, a minister. I'm going to appoint you All of those things suggest God's sovereignty at work. It was his choice to save Saul, did it? You know, as I think about that, the same thing can be said of us as it comes to our salvation. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I don't mean to make your heads explode, but Ephesians chapter 1, look at verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. When did Jesus Christ choose you for salvation? You can go ahead and shout it out. When? Before the foundations of the world, He chose you. But but, 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 wait a minute, didn't I I choose Him? How about Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8, verse 29, this Apostle Paul again. We'll start in verse 28, yeah. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called, what, according to His purpose. It's His sovereignty. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called... And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. You look at that pattern. Talks about God's purpose first. Says that God foreknew the ones that he saves. It says that he predestined those whom he saves. Then it says he calls. 
See the pattern there? His purpose, he foreknows, he predestines, he calls. It's God's sovereignty. goes on here to say that those who he predestines, he ultimately will justify, and those he justifies, it actually puts it in an aorist tense here, he has glorified. It doesn't mean that it's quite done yet, it just means that it is certain to happen. That's our eternal security right there. We're saved because we fit into God's purpose and plan, and it's all about him, It's not about us. So you see God's sovereignty in the calling of people that he saves. That should offer us a tremendous amount of security. Romans chapter 10. The other side of this. Look at chapter 10 verse 9. Start at verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus has Lord and believe in your heart that God raises him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart a person believes, can, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. From the scripture, for the scripture says, whomever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the other side of this. There is a personal choice. Now, I can't put those puzzle pieces together for you in a way that's going to satisfy us, except that on the one side we have God's sovereignty, and the other side we have man's free will, and somehow they fit together like a hand in a glove, and even though we might not always be able to fully comprehend or explain that, they're both the reality. And we see that both in Saul here. We see Jesus initiate in his sovereignty, I'm going to save the apostle, or the, 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 who will become the apostle Paul. He's going to be my instrument. But at the same point, we see Paul saying, King Agrippa, I made the choice to obey. I chose to now follow him. So we can't escape the, this picture of sovereignty that we see here in this section with Saul. And again, it should offer us peace and comfort in ourselves that the Lord chose us just as much as he did Saul. Saul chose us I I see that in my own life because I told you before I know uh, for the longest time I was asking God for help but pushing back refusing the help that he put right in front of me and for at least six months I said I'm not interested but God continued to pursue that Bob Kegel the guy that led me to Christ could have easily said all right I'm just going through the checklist. i got 64 guys on this floor that I need to witness to before the semester's over. Mike, you're not interested. Dave, he's not interested. Joe's not interested. Moving on. But the Lord had other purposes in mind. Kept bringing Bob back. To the guy that told him no, no. The guy that called him a Jesus freak. The guy that said he's not interested. The Lord's sovereignty. But I still had to make a choice. And I did. The last takeaway from this section, I think, is that we can't escape here the tremendous nature of God's grace. That's the other side of it. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For grace, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. We see that here. Paul didn't deserve to be saved, did he? What did Paul deserve? Death. He was a murderer, a slanderer. 
a blasphemer. What he deserved was death, not mercy, not grace. In the passage you read earlier from Romans 5.8, Paul said, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When did Christ die for us? When we were sinners. That's grace. Giving us something we do not deserve. Sinners don't deserve mercy, grace, forgiveness. They deserve judgment. Do you think Paul understood the significance of those statements? That it's by grace we're saved? I think he did. I read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 before, but I left off a small segment. Paul wrote to Timothy, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he says, among whom I am foremost of all. Paul knew his past. Knew that he was an enemy of Christ. Paul, I believe, understood profoundly what grace is. Because of all people, he wasn't just some Jew that was living his life and rejecting the witnesses. His mission was to destroy those who were preaching that. And so he wasn't just, I don't know, I wasn't a good Jew. You know, I wasn't so bad. I just didn't get it. No, Paul knew that his past made him an enemy of Christ. And so he profoundly understood the grace that had been extended to him. If Jesus could save Saul, a murderous thug who persecuted and killed Christians, then he can save anyone. Is that not true? Peter wrote that it's because God does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's the God whom we serve. And we see that happen here with the story of Saul. Saul's life is a testimony to God's grace and his sovereignty. And we see that here. There's another encounter that takes place here that's somewhat unexpected. And it's with a man named Ananias. Luke introduces us to him in uh, verses 10 through 12. Go ahead and go back to Acts chapter 9. Verses 10 through 12. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to a street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So Ananias actually lived in Damascus, the very city to which Paul was headed. He was a devoted Jew and Christian. In fact, Paul mentions him in Acts chapter 22. And it says that he was well spoken of by others. He was well liked. When Jesus appeared to him, he actually calls on him to go to the house where Saul is staying to lay hands on him and cure him of his blindness. Now, imagine what must have been going through Ananias' head. He knew who Saul was. He knew why Saul was there. I imagine Ananias probably would have liked to have been hiding in his closet. Knowing that Saul was there to hunt down people just like him. Especially a man like Ananias who had a reputation. People knew who he was. If Saul came into that city and said, So where are the Christians in here? Whose name do you suppose would come to the surface? The popular Christians. 
the ones that had a reputation. If I were Ananias, I'd be want to hiding. I'd be want to, or I'd want to be hiding in my closet. It says that he knew all the harm he did to his saints. Look at verses thirteen through fourteen. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So he says he knew about the harm that Saul had caused. He knew that he was there to bind them and take them off to Jerusalem. I think we can probably empathize with Ananias, can't we? How many of us would have probably said the same thing? Uh, Jesus, are you sure about this? Do you know who Saul is, Lord? It's kind of a crazy question. Of course the Lord knew who he was. And so we can empathize with Ananias. It didn't make sense. It's unexpected that Jesus would tell them to go to the number one enemy of the church. Why would he be wanting to do that? Why would he call Ananias to do that? I think those are all questions we'd probably ask ourselves. Why do you want me to do that, Lord? So Jesus reveals his purpose. Verses 15 through 16, read those with me. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Jesus reveals to Ananias that Paul was now his chosen instrument. The word there is vessel. Um, to bear his name before the Gentiles and kings. This idea of a vessel is, is that you put something in it to be carried somewhere. And so he's basically saying, Paul is going to be my vessel now to carry my name before kings, before Jews, before Gentiles. He also revealed that Paul would suffer to do this. That's an interesting statement as well. We get a picture of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Turn there with me if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul describes the suffering that he faced because of his commitment to Christ. He says, verse 22, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors, and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, in dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure of me for concern for all the churches who is weak without me being weak who is led into sin without my intense concern if I have to boast I will boast of what pertains to my weaknesses that's a catalog isn't it how'd you like that on your resume when Jesus said Saul I'm going to show you how much you have to suffer for my name's sake he meant it I think you know as I grapple with this why I think I can probably say this with a certain amount of confidence. We're told that we'll suffer for Christ. And there's varying degrees of that. Some suffer tremendously. Some lose their lives. Others don't. I don't know how God works all that out. 
But one of the things that stands out about the Apostle Paul, and I think the reason that Jesus maybe did it this way, the reason from the very beginning he told Saul, okay, I'm going to show you how much you have to suffer. One thing we know about the Apostle Paul, he's told us this, is he was zealous. He was on fire to protect Judaism and defend the name of God. His motives were not wrong or ill, if, you, if I can say it that way. He was zealous for God. And so what motivated him to persecute the church was he thought that it was false teaching. He thought they were blaspheming. And so he was out there as a, as a great defender trying to defend God and defend Judaism and defend the law. He's just going about it wrong. He was misinformed. And so I believe that Jesus basically looked at Saul and said, Okay, I like the zealousness. You are a defender. That's what you want. What you don't understand is the cost. So Saul, you want this? You want to defend me? If you want to be out there and see people brought to God? Okay. Then let's do this. But there's a cost involved with it. And so he took that zealousness that was within Saul and he took that and he said... I'll, I'm going to have you do that. But there's a cost to do what you say you want to do. I find that fascinating. One of the things we often fail to do is when we try to lead people to Christ is we make it all sunshine, rainbows, and unicorns. And that's not always the way that it is. Can you imagine sharing the gospel with somebody in North Korea and saying, God's got a wonderful plan for your life. Just give your life to Christ and new Mercedes. <laughs> Whatever it is, the things that we you know that, that get promised by coming to Christ, life, that's not the reality. In fact, we went through First and Second Peter, which talk about the suffering that, that comes because of being a follower of Christ. We live in a situation in a world right now where it's getting more and more difficult. By far, it's not hard right now, but it's going to become much more difficult professing the name of Christ in our culture and our society. We see what's happening and where things are going. And so, Paul's told that he's going to suffer, and he certainly did. Didn't discourage him, though. We see that in all of his letters. Now, what most people remember about Ananias here is that he was the man who actually laid his hands on Saul and gave him back his sight. Look at uh, verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food, and he was strengthened. So that's basically what we oftentimes think about Ananias. But did you notice... There's more to the story, and it comes in Acts chapter 26, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 22. Turn there real quickly with me. There's three accounts of this. There's Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26 as well. They kind of fill in some of the holes. But there's a there's an interesting note in Acts chapter 22, and it's something to be real frank. I've never really put together. But Acts chapter 22. Look down at verse 12. Paul is telling the story this time. A certain Ananias. A man who was devout in the standard of the law, by the standard of the law, and well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing near me, and he said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. 
And at that very time I looked at him and he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now look at this. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Ananias was the evangelistic tool that the Lord sent to Saul. Ananias is the one that said, Paul, or Saul, you need to repent of your sins and you need to call on the name of the voice you just heard. Get up, don't delay, do it. Ananias was the evangelistic tool. He was the motivator. Paul didn't come to Christ on the road to Damascus. All he knew was, Jesus is talking to me, i got to go back to Damascus, and I'm blind. The Lord sent Ananias to Saul as the tool to finish the gospel, so to speak. Saul, you need to repent. That's what this is all about. You need to get up, be baptized. That's a call to coming to Christ. It's funny, we don't often think of Ananias as being the one that ultimately led Saul to Christ, do we? What's the takeaway? Just two of them. Um, Much like Ananias, we don't often think about Jesus saving our enemies, do we? We think of our enemies today, those who persecute us, wish to harm us, because of our faith in Christ, how often do we really think of their need for salvation? How often do we do what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, which is, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Like Ananias, how many of us are hesitant or cynical to think that God might actually care about and actually extend to our enemies the same grace that he did to save us? You know, we're living in a world where... um, here in the United States, it's getting more frustrating. You know, we went from a fairly Christianized culture, if you will. Doesn't mean everybody was saved, but it still had a strong Christian influence to one now that is, in many respects, becoming somewhat more pagan. Fewer people going to church. But not only that, more and more people hating what Christ stands for, hating what the church stands for, hating Christians. We just went through this weird period of the pandemic and election and all that kind of stuff, and we saw ourselves get frustrated and angry and we start pointing fingers and we hate the politicians and we hate this and we hate that and we hate the masks and we hate this and and so what do we do? We lash out. We don't say kind things. How many of us have really stopped to say, but wait a minute, you know what? These people desperately need Christ. They need to be saved. That's not usually our first thought. And I'm sure with Ananias, his first thought wasn't, oh Jesus, you want to save the great persecutor Saul. Wonderful. Instead, his response was, Lord, I know what he's done. I know why he's, why he's here. His first thought wasn't to rejoice that Jesus wanted to save Saul. But it should have been. And so as we think about what's going on around us right now, we need to make sure we don't fall into the trap of hating our enemies and just pointing fingers. Instead, we need to start thinking, Jesus Christ wants to save these people. He wants to save them just like he did Saul. Second takeaway is that God wants to use us to do it. Do you think Ananias woke up in the morning expecting to be a tool used by God to lead one of the chief opponents and enemies of the church to Christ? 
even when Jesus is talking to him. Initially, you don't seem to sense it. And I say, oh, you've picked me to go to Saul. I get to be the one to witness to him. It's a pattern we see in the Old Testament. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to people that continued to reject, to their enemies. We see the pattern in the book of Acts. Pentecost was ultimately a witness to the Jewish masses that had put Christ to death. But God sent the apostles back to those people. The Lord sent Peter, James, John, and Stephen to witness to the very men, the Sanhedrin, who had condemned Jesus and put him to death, sent them back to the same men who had beaten them. In the upcoming chapters of the book of Acts, we're going to see how Saul witnessed time and time and time again before his enemies. Some of them ultimately get saved. So it shouldn't surprise us that the Lord would send a man like Ananias part of the body of Christ, ultimately to be a tool used to lead an enemy of the church to Christ. That's the way God wants to use us. That's why he left us here. We're the tool to lead the enemies of Christ to Christ. That should not surprise us, because we see it throughout the scriptures. So it makes me ask the question, which of our enemies is he calling us to witness to? You know, I think, again, we don't face the kind of persecution that they do in many parts of the world, but a time may be coming. But our response really ought to be, as we see this stuff happening around us, how does God want to use me to witness to those who are opposing him, those who are, who, or who are his enemies? It comes out in the way that we talk, the things that we say, the things that we fret about. That's all a witness, is it not? How we behave as a church, how we behave as Christians right now is one of the biggest witnesses we have to those outside the church. How are they going to see us respond when we get persecuted? God wants to use us ultimately to lead them to Christ. Amen?